0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is
1: Earth Eats. I've paid other Indonesians who maybe have traveled to Indonesia recently and brought back ingredients. I like give them money and they give me stuff that I'm not able to find here. That looks cool. <laughs> Smuggling in goods.
0: <laughs> this week on our show, Toby Foster talks with Malati Chitra Raja of Three Salted Fish about exploring Indonesian cuisine with her family. And she shares vegetarian recipes featuring ingredients from her garden in Oakland, California. And we hear about a scientist turned farmer applying eco-organic methods to grow foods usually found in China. Plus, reflections on our sense of smell. That's all coming up, stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Farmers in the Midwest are gearing up for a fight over whether pipelines can cut through their land. Three companies are proposing piping carbon dioxide emissions from ethanol plants out of state. Many look to the experience other farmers had with the Dakota Access Pipeline a few years ago. Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikus reports.
2: Keith Puntini's home in Boone, Iowa, has become a library dedicated to his fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline.
3: There's tens of thousands of pages and stuff you know, in here.
2: The retired tax attorney's living room has bookcases of legal documents and maps of his farmland. After the crude oil pipeline was announced in 2014, Puntini feared what would happen if the oil spilled.
3: If there's ever any kind of a release, the way that they were crossing people's property was going to damage a lot of you know the farmland.
2: He also worried about how construction would impact his soil and yields. The Iowa Utilities Board signed off on the project and allowed the pipeline's owner to seize people's private land. Puntany fought the board and the pipeline all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court, but he lost. It was a big disappointment.
3: We expected them actually to rule in our favor, because there had never been an Iowa Supreme Court case on an interstate pipeline you know, benefit out of Iowa giving eminent domain. That was the first time that had happened.
2: Eminent domain, that's the power to seize people's private property for a public purpose. One of the first things you learn in, in law school and in your first year property class is that property rights are a lot less absolute than you probably assumed. That's University of Iowa law professor Shannon Raisler. She says eminent domain has been used for projects such as water infrastructure and highways. Raisler says for eminent domain to be applied in Iowa, there has to be a public purpose beyond economic development. The question for the carbon pipelines is what is the extra benefit to Iowans from shipping carbon from ethanol and fertilizer plants out of state? Extra meaning more than just revenue from taxes and jobs. The carbon pipeline companies say they will extend the viability of the ethanol industry, an important part of Iowa's economy. They also promise environmental benefits. Elizabeth Burns Thompson is with Navigator CO2 Ventures, one of the pipeline companies.
4: These are truly taking CO2 that otherwise would have been emitted In some of our small communities across our state, this isn't just offsetting an emission, you know, on one coast or the other. Um, This is truly preventing an emission that would have happened in some of our backyards.
2: But some Iowa farmers don't see it that way.
3: This is greenwashing on on the benefits that they're, they're trying to sell.
2: Richard McCain has more than 900 acres of farmland in northern Iowa. Some of the land has been in his family for more than a century. He and his wife, Phyllis, are familiar with how other farmers struggled with the Dakota Access Pipeline. They worry about the safety of the carbon dioxide pipelines and being forced to give up the land that they've worked hard to protect.
3: It's a nightmare. It's a living nightmare. Um, Because, you know, it'll be right smack in front of our house. It's hazardous material.
4: It makes a person angry that this is private property and they think they can come in and do what they want to.
2: In Keith Puntini's case, five years after the Dakota Access Pipeline's construction, he's still seeing impacts. He says the three acres affected are less productive and their value is down. The pipeline's owner, Energy Transfer, says it's mostly done remediating the land and it's still working with a few farmers to fix things. But now Puntany's farmland could be adjacent to a carbon dioxide pipeline. He says it's deja vu.
3: I have concerns that this is just same thing, different day in terms of how this pipe is going to be put in the ground and that the issues that, that I experienced and still experience five years later are not ending. Uh, they're just going to happen to somebody else.
2: So Puntany is preparing for another fight, and he's not the only one. Farmers across the state are organizing, hoping to protect their land. I'm Katie Pikus, Harvest Public Media.
0: Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. In rural North Carolina, many organic farmers are trying to crack the code on how to grow without pesticides and fertilizers. Josephine McRobbie has the story of one farmer who is applying his research skills to do something even more difficult grow vegetables usually found
5: halfway across the world. It's a rainy summer morning at Huanong Eco-Organic Farm in Hurdle Mills, North Carolina. So Cheng Hozu is harvesting higher,
6: some super-sweet sugar tomatoes this. for market. So On a regular tomato, the breaks at index of sugar is uh, around 3 to 5, but this one is uh, 11, 12, even higher.
5: Changhe, who goes by Chang, is telling me about the BRICS index. It's an optical measurement of sap from a fruit or veggie that can quantify its sweetness. He is more than familiar with the sciencey parts of farming, because until recently he was a senior research scientist at Virginia Tech University.
6: So I got my bachelor's degree in vegetable science, master's degree in plant pathology, and my PhD in fruit science. Chang was
5: born in the Henan province in central China, where both of his
6: parents were farmers.
5: Did you learn certain things from them growing up?
6: Yeah, 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 I did. Even when I was very very young, I was very young, probably five to seven years old. I worked with them to help them do some farming. I learned how to sow the seeds, yeah, how to harvest, how to manage, do the management.
5: Chang went to college and eventually taught in Wuhan at one of China's best agriculture schools. He came to the U.S. in 2001 as a visiting scholar hosted at the USDA Fruit Lab in Maryland. He was working on how to quickly identify diseases in imported grapefruit. As he continued to move through research science positions in the Southeast, he was always looking for Asian produce that he missed from home. A favorite is winter winter
6: melon. You can buy some in the Asian grocery store. But that's not good. Another is
5: Hun Sai Tai.
6: Uh, tastes like the uh, mini broccoli, but it tastes better than that one.
5: He began experimenting with growing his own fruits and vegetables over the course of several years. Chung dreamed of farming more seriously after retirement, but he came to realize time was of the essence.
6: We started uh, this farming in 2016, five years ago. So, why would we do this? Because at that, that time, I'm just past the 50s, but I have a lot of thought in my mind. But uh, I cannot wait for the retire. Even after retire, I cannot do everything. So I think I should study, study the earlier. Then I can do everything by myself. So at that time, I decided to quit my job, start the farming. So not uh, one day, oh. I want to do farming, the next day I quit my job, no, that's So I did some experiment, small-scale experiment, oh, that's good. Then I decided in 2016, after five years of preparation, so then I quit my job.
5: When he left his research career in 2016, Chang and his family decided to move south to North Carolina's warmer climate to give commercial farming a serious go. And he knew that this would mean learning every part of the farming process. So
6: in the last five years, everything is is done by myself, I have to, because for the farmer, you have to to do everything by yourself, if you know what's going on, what's tricky, what's the good things or the bad things, how to improve it. So even I I was a professor, so I still do everything, everything by myself.
5: Today, he grows and sells southern U.S. staples like tomato, watermelon, and okra, but specializes in a wide variety of Asian produce. He's had to do a lot of legwork to figure out what will grow in North Carolina
6: clay. A lot of people don't want to grow their vegetables. too much work. Another problem, they don't have a good variety. Such as these cucumbers, I select at least ten to. At least 30 varieties. Yeah, this I introduced from from China. Then just one or two varieties are good here. Very, very difficult. In the last several years, we grew a lot, but just harvest a little, very little.
5: He shows me a line of tender water spinach, newly watered and protected under a uh, see-through mesh fabric. Some,
6: this is the sun cloud. Yeah, it's very, time in the noon, very hot. You burn this these leaves. Also, this one we use, this is a uh, uh, insect barrier to prevent uh, insects.
5: Mechanical and traditional means like fences and coverings are important tools. Chung does not use pesticides or fertilizers or even farm manure to control disease and grow crops. It's an ethos he developed through years of studying plant pathology, and he's passionate about it, even if it further limits what he can grow.
6: Yeah, farms are very good but not for this uh, eco method. If You use fertilizer, pesticides, they grow very well. But if you use uh, without a, uh, chemical pesticide, without uh, this pesticide, without uh, f- chemical fertilizer, it cannot, very bad. A lot of insects, pathogens, so they cannot survive.
5: Despite his background in plant disease, Chang isn't afraid of critters, even bugs. His fields are buzzing with noises. Crickets, bees, chickens, ducks. Properly managed, they can all be of benefit to the crops.
6: In the last 40 years, I have been working on this vegetable science. My idea is we don't use any pesticide. Just grow naturally. So let's the nature nature control everything. Every organism has has their role in this nature. Yeah, even some would say the insects, they eat our vegetables or other crops. But we don't need to control them, kill them. Insects uh, survive in our farm. That means they have some role in our farm. One role is within the soil. The soil, we know that contains this clay, Uh, fertilizer, or a lot of chemicals, and the most important things in the soil is uh, organism. A lot of these microorganisms live on or in our body, so that's very important for our health. So this is a new technology called microbiome. In the plants, they call it phytobiome.
5: The phytobiome of a plant benefits from a controlled diversity of organisms and microorganisms living in and around the soil — things like insects, fungi, small animals, and bacteria. And the soil is further
6: strengthened by another technique. All that our are weeds, native weeds. So weeds is our treasure. That's very important for us. Chang is pointing to a
5: tunnel hoop overrun by weeds. They can actually do a lot of good for a garden. They protect the soil, attract beneficial insects, and even help pull minerals up to the roots of growing plants.
6: Yeah, this is why we don't use the cover crop, we use the weeds. So their roots, very developed, very developed, very deep, very long. Yeah, it can absorb some uh, minerals from the deep part of the soil into the topsoil.
5: New plantings grow through can-sized holes in a tarp on each row. Underneath, weeds are controlled but not killed. After harvest, the tarp is removed and the weeds take over for the fall and early winter. Then he mows and tills the area to prepare for a new season of crops. In coming years, Chung hopes to grow Asian pear, apple, and Asian flower varieties on the farm. His passion for sharing through science and growing even factors into the name Huanong Eco-Organic Farm, which is partially in tribute to his alma mater and partially a mission statement.
6: Huanong, that's the, in China, that's Huanong Agriculture University. Huanong, that means China. Nong is agriculture, so the Chinese agriculture.
5: So the name translates as Chinese Agriculture Eco-Organic Farm. <music> For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie. I'm
0: Kate Young. You're listening to Earth Eats.
4: How do you know how much
1: rice is in I don't know. It's just, like, always works (laughs) out. My name is Mulati Chitrawereja, and I write an online newsletter called Three Salted Fish that explores all things Indonesian food and culture from my perspective as an Indonesian American.
4: I was first introduced to Mulati over a year ago through my partner's brother, Peter, but I only finally got the chance to meet her outside of a Zoom call last month when my partner and I visited Oakland, California, just before the Delta variant sent many of us retreating back into our homes. Maladi is primarily a photographer by trade, but when I saw that she started writing a newsletter last year called Three Salted Fish, focused on Indonesian food and cooking, I was excited to subscribe. In it, she shares recipes for Indonesian food, many of which are inspired by or adapted from her stepmother Esti. It's a type of cuisine that I didn't know much about, and I've enjoyed learning about it and trying a few recipes at home. Maladi was kind enough to let me interview her during my visit, and we also got the chance to cook together.
1: I started an Indonesian food Instagram last year, I think maybe in October, and then I think I started my newsletter in March, April or or March, a monthly newsletter. Yeah, my newsletter is called Three Salted Fish, or in Indonesian it would be tiga ikan asin.
4: I asked Malati about where her interest in cooking and sharing recipes began.
1: So I kind of always grew up cooking. My mom was a pastry chef, so we were always baking and cooking together. And then my father is Southeast Asian, he's Indonesian and grew up in Java. And that's how I got interested in Indonesian cooking. He married a really sweet woman, remarried a sweet woman named Esti. She is an amazing cook and has always been really forthcoming with sharing her secrets and recipes and so I grew up cooking with her as well and yeah, I just feel very connected to my dad's side of the family when I'm cooking and whenever I go back to visit Indonesia I always insist on spending lots of time in the kitchen with my relatives because they're all really amazing cooks and it's a very different flavor profile than what I guess I am normally used to living in California. So it's been really nice to explore just like different flavors and dishes that are unique to me and also people here as well. Indonesian food is very flavorful. It's not really a subtle (laughs) type of cuisine. Um, They really like spicy food pretty much every, meal that you'd have would have some sort of sambal or like spicy chili paste and there's all different kinds there's like ones with tomato and ones with fermented shrimp paste and there's some sambals that are served mixed into a vegetable salad like a green bean sambal and also because Indonesia Mm. is basically a string of islands it's very close to the ocean so there's a lot of fish-based stuff so My newsletter, Tiga Ikan Asin, Three Salted Fish, is sort of kind of an homage to my family because my dad's family is from um, a fishing village, and my dad was a fisherman when he was younger, and my grandma still, to this day, she doesn't need to work, but I think she likes to stay busy, she Mm -hmm. salts fish, she salt cures fish, and then sells it on the beach. Um, So yeah, that's also a a flavor that's very present. Salted fish, different kinds of fish, shrimp, and... Some other flavors that are pretty common are like coconut, because there's lots of, it's a tropical place, so there's lots of coconut, coconuts growing. And so there's like coconut sugar, coconut milk, shredded coconut, lots of roots and spices in there too, because it's also kind of the Spice Islands area. So lots of turmeric and ginger and some different things that I'm only just learning about, like contour, which is sort of a type of ginger.
4: I asked Malati how often, pre-pandemic, she was able to visit Indonesia to visit family and learn more about the food.
1: I would go every maybe three or four years. I didn't go for a while when I was younger, and then I went when I was a teenager, and yeah, I've tried to make it my agenda to go back maybe every three or four years. But I'll go for a long period of time. I'll go for four or five months. and really. Yeah, really spend a lot of time with my family and travel around, yeah, and just try to feel more invested in the place.
4: I wondered if Malati has any trouble finding the right ingredients for her cooking.
1: I am lucky to be in a place where there are lots of Asian markets all over the place, but specifically Southeast Asian ingredients are a little bit harder to come by. Um, there's lots of like Chinese markets and Korean markets. But finding specifically Indonesian ingredients has been difficult and there are a couple of places that I know of and sometimes they have what I would need and sometimes they don't have what I need. So that's been a challenge, but it also has gotten me interested in growing my own ingredients, which has been fun, um, especially over the pandemic, doing a lot more gardening. So yeah, I've been like growing ingredients that are not accessible here, like lemon basil or kinchur, the um, root I was talking about, Mm -hmm. Um, makrut lime leaves, which are relatively available here, but it's nice to have some just kind of readily on hand, lemongrass, stuff like that. And also I've paid other Indonesians who maybe have traveled to Indonesia recently and brought back ingredients. I like give them money and they give me stuff that I'm not able to find here, (laughs) smuggling in goods.
4: (laughs) Although I try to search out as many different kinds of food as I can, I haven't come across very many Indonesian restaurants or cookbooks. I asked Malati about this.
1: Yes, definitely. Growing up in the Bay Area, which I feel like is known for being really diverse and having a lot of different kinds of foods, Indonesian food is still, like, just not present. It's just now starting, I think, since the pandemic and now, um, with loosening restrictions on like home-cooked food, some pop-ups are starting to crop up and that's been really exciting to see. And there also has been a new Indonesian restaurant that opened up recently, but aside from you know a small handful of people that have been doing this, it's kind of been a cuisine that hasn't really been explored.
4: I wanted to know more about these home pop-ups.
1: Pop-ups? are pretty common here, using commissary kitchens, and and also like lots of brick and mortar restaurants have been pretty generous in offering their kitchens like after hours to do pop-ups. But I think now that you can actually use your home kitchen and sell, you know, a a certain number of meals a week, I think that more people are stepping up and doing that. There's a local Bakso pop-up, which is Indonesian noodle soup. It's like the first time I've had Indonesian noodle soup here ever. So uh-huh. it was really, really exciting to see them do that. And they're really, really sweet people.
4: Yeah, that's cool. I, I think it's definitely going to be interesting to see how the pandemic changes. Yeah. The, uh, just restaurants.
1: And also, yeah, a lot of actual brick and mortar restaurants have had to close. So I feel like there are people who maybe had restaurants before and that wasn't sustainable anymore. So the, now they're doing kind of more creative things with their skills, Mm -hmm. like doing pop-ups.
4: I wondered if Malati had any plans to try cooking professionally?
1: No, not currently. (laughs) I think for me, it's a little bit more of a personal project. Having the newsletter kind of keeps me continually exploring and kind of holds me accountable. And it also offers me an avenue to kind of share with people, and I do want to do some pop ups occasionally, but I don't think that it will ever be my career mm-hmm. to do this. Yeah, it just brings me a lot of joy.
4: Three salted fish is more than just recipes. Additionally, Maladi interviews other chefs and artisans and uses food as a jumping off point for thoughtful, personal reflections on life in general, and specifically during the pandemic as an Indonesian American in the Bay Area.
1: Yeah, so. I think food is sort of the common denominator and that's a good, kind of easy way to connect with people and to invite people into this culture or learning more about this country. But also for me, it has been a way to connect with the wider Indonesian community in the Bay Area, especially because, you know, not only are there not many restaurants around, but I feel like the community is sort of like spread out and there's not really a central community Indonesian community that I've really known about or been connected to growing up so for me this was a good excuse to like slide into people's DMs and be like can I talk to you? You seem really interesting and I want to learn more about you and your community and your family history so it's been a good way to connect with other Indonesian Americans. I interviewed a a tempeh maker named Febi who's a local tempeh maker and she does subscription tempeh and she was really sweet she's about my age so it was, it was cool to connect kind of on that peer level and um being raised with indonesian parents but also being american and how we kind of juggle that dynamic and i also spoke with a local chef named siska Litonga who just opened a restaurant in um, redwood city and she grew up in indonesia but she's been in the bay area for a very long time it's been great to finally connect with all of these people who I just didn't even know existed until I made it my agenda to, to find them.
4: Do you wanna describe what you're gonna cook or what we're gonna cook? Sure.
1: So um, I'm going to make a vegetarian meal today both of these dishes that I'm making are kind of common street foods that you can find. One's called tempeh kering and it's fried tempeh with a kind of tangy, spicy tamarind sauce. And it's kind of yummy and decadent in a fried sort of way. And then the other one is called kari and it's a fresh salad with a spicy peanut sauce dressing. So it has long beans and cabbage and sprouts and then yeah the dressing has different spices and mac lime leaves and more tamarind and coconut sugar and coconut
4: both sound amazing cool well yeah cool. i guess we can go get started
1: okay yeah.
4: First, we go out into the garden to pick a few ingredients
1: for the meal. Well, this very overgrown greenhouse uh, is home to a lot of our tropical types of plants and veg. And I have a lot of lemon basil in here, but I grew from seed because it's really hard to find fresh in the Bay Area. So, and I really, really like the flavor and it's kind of a flavor that can't be replicated and it's super yummy. It's gonna go in the kare dok. It's very, very good. And we also have so this is kinchur. that's the that kind of gingery root i was talking about okay and also the leaves are kind of a more fresh version of it do you want to try it sure it's like kind of licoricey do you taste anything
4: i need a bigger piece yeah it's it's pretty subtle but yeah it's good and you said this is something that you can't really find in the store
1: this one so you definitely can't find it fresh in the store but um also used in Chinese food too. I think it's called sand ginger and you can get it dried at the Chinese market Oops. at certain places. Um, but I've never been able to find it fresh.
4: And what's this? What's this? this
1: is also lemon-based. Oh, okay. so lemon, lemon, well that's lemon. This is a pandan plant. Yeah, a lot of Indonesian desserts are centered on coconut, coconut sugar, pandan, rice. <laughs> kind of like some combination of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got lemongrass over here, got our lime. But see, these ones are tiny. <laughs> oh yeah. They have a ways to go. So for now, I just steal from other people's
4: yards. <laughs> <laughs> we head inside to cook. Malati starts by getting rice on the stove.
1: Pretty much every Indonesian meal has rice. My grandma... <laughs> Refuses to eat bread, she thinks it's disgusting, huh. but rice she eats for every meal. Here is the rice first, and then I always do the, the finger method. What,
4: what's the finger method? The finger
1: method is where you fill the water about one, you're up to your first finger notch, knuckle, okay. the first knuckle, the knuckle method.
4: How do you know how much rice to put it in?
1: I don't know, It's just like <laughs> always works <laughs> just <how> <laughs> Okay, so I think maybe first I'll make the salad and then I'll make the tempeh because then the tempeh will be hot when we have it. Okay. So I'm going to fry some peanuts and chop up the veg.
4: Feel free to put me to work too if you want sure. to you want chop. Sure, you want to chop some veg? I can chop. Okay,
1: let's do that.
4: I begin to wash and chop long beans while Malati fries peanuts for the sauce.
1: In Indonesia there are many, many, many different dialects. There's the kind of main national language, which is Bahasa, Indonesia. But then on every island, there are many different dialects that are all so contrasted from each other. Um, And my stepmom is grew up in sort of the Sundanese region of Java. And she lived like 20 minutes away from where my dad grew up. And he, his family and his area, they spoke, speak Javanese. And so the languages are totally different, but they're like, 20 minutes from each other, which I just think is really interesting. But this dish that we're making, Fatidop, is, I think, originally a Sundanese dish. And Sundanese like to use shrimp paste a lot, so normally this, this dish would have some shrimp paste in it, but we won't need it.
4: The omission of shrimp paste is for my benefit, as my partner and I are both vegetarian. Meanwhile, we're joined by Miladi's roommate, mm-hmm. Emily, who takes over the questions while I chop cabbage.
6: Do you
1: think that mm-hmm. frying the peanuts fresh right before you make the sauce is, that's what makes it taste different? Yeah, because I tried to do it with the baked, baked peanuts and it's yeah. still good, but I feel like frying it just makes it extra yeah.
4: delicious. As I chop cucumbers from the garden and pick lemon basil, Malati starts the second batch of peanuts and soaks the dried kenture so it can be ground along with the other aromatics.
1: So traditionally, Everything would be blended with like a very big mortar and pestle Uh called a tobek and olekan, but um, I'm using my blender. (laughs) It's way quicker. So it'll have fresh ginger, contour, garlic and shallot are like pretty much in every single indonesian dish, Mm -hmm. tamarind, palm sugar, uh, lots of makut lime leaves. I like to put lots of them in because I really like the flavor.
4: Sweet soy sauce. Sweet soy sauce is another ingredient that is common to Indonesian cooking that I only had a vague familiarity with.
1: It's almost like molasses in a way. It's thick and sweet and salty. It's funny we call it ketchup manis. So we just call it like ketchup for short, which I think is confusing because people are like, you're putting ketchup in here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, also the other thing about Indonesian food is there aren't very many cookbooks. People just like do it by sight and just by memory, you know. So like when I'm trying to learn recipes or follow along, they're just like, oh just a little bit of that, this, this, a little bit of that, until it tastes right, you know, which uh-huh. is like hard when you're working with unusual. Meat. It's been yeah. definitely a learning curve. Indonesians also really like their food to be very salty. Salty, stinky, spicy.
3: Mm-hmm. All the good things.
1: Yes. is the um, coconut palm sugar. This kind, the kind that comes in blocks. Uh uh-huh. Gula Jawa. The way it's made is it's cooked over a wood fire. My uncle um, makes coconut palm sugar for a living. Hard work. <laughs>
4: yeah, I was gonna say, what's that process like?
1: So, he has to climb, I forget exactly how many, but like dozens of trees every day, twice a day. So first we'll go in the morning and he'll tap it and start the Process of getting the nectar at the top of the tree and then at the end of the day, he'll go up and he'll take the buckets down. And then his wife who recently passed away was usually in charge of cooking it. he you cook it for like, I don't know, many hours, cook the nectar down into this like thick sludge and then they pour it into molds. So it's a very arduous <laughs> process. Yeah.
4: So, at this point, we have fried peanuts, macruit lime leaves, coconut sugar, tamarind, lime, garlic, ginger, shallots, white pepper, and a little bit of vegetable stock just to get everything moving in the blender.
1: Whenever I cook Indonesian food, I make a huge mess. It <laughs> like a thousand
4: ingredients. I know, I was gonna say, it seems like there's a lot of ingredients involved. The <laughs> These are
1: Thai chilies, or I think they're also called bird's eye chilies.
4: You're putting them in seeds and everything? Yes. <laughs>
1: Soy sauce. Okay, I'm gonna try this and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. I think it needs a little more of everything. I
4: really wanna be able to taste the mm-hmm. It's pretty tasty already.
1: Yeah, it's not too spicy. No, it's good
4: enough. We get the sauce dialed in to everyone's satisfaction, then we start on the tempeh curing. I'm in charge of frying tempeh.
1: So the tempeh dish has a lot of coriander in it. it okay. really makes it yummy. It's too fresh. Mm-hmm. So I just like to cook the tempeh till it's golden brown and kind of crispy. So for this one, I think I'll actually just blend it in the mortar and pestle so we can see how it's really done. Okay. So for a lot of um, Indonesian dishes, they blend together spice paste in the beginning. One was called bumbu. I don't think I would with that.
4: It in wouldn't be dish. like a pre-mixed thing.
1: I mean, these days, more and more, there are pre-mixed packaged spice blends, but if you're doing it the village way, mm-hmm. you blend it yourself.
3: Well,
4: so you're putting coriander, um, tempeh in yes. the pan,
1: I do salt. I- with salt and coriander and then also I add more coriander later. But I kind of like when it gets sort of brown and crispy. Mm-hmm. Candle nuts are also in the base of a lot of Indonesian bumbus. Also, I guess I just recently found out it's also the same as a kukui nut, like in Hawaii.
4: Hmm. What did you what did you call it before? Candlenut. nut. Candle nut.
1: Yeah. And if you don't uh, have no, candle nut you can substitute with like hazelnut or okay. like a macadamia nut. Kind of just makes it like a little bit creamier.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not really flavorful. Yeah, that looks good. Okay. Also, anytime I use a mortar and pestle for my make they always crack up because so I'm like, no, they've been doing it their whole life. Yeah. I have this very special way they do it. it would just look so clumsy. And this also has my lime leaves. I'm gonna slice them up
4: really thin. So are you cutting out the stem, basically, of the one? Yeah. deveining it. Mm-hmm. So at this point, our spice blend includes garlic, shallots, chilies, candlenuts, ginger, and bay leaf. And I'm just about done frying the tempeh. Yeah.
1: All right. Thin? Okay. I'm just gonna wash it up. Indonesians are also not shy with foil.
4: We fry the spice mix, then add tamarind, sweet soy sauce, and coconut sugar. So you're kind of like deglazing the pan with the tamarind yeah. mix?
1: Basically, you want to just sort of cook it down until it's sort of like a st- sticky, tacky sauce. And then you just mix in temper.
4: That looks really good. <laughs>
1: I'm just jujiging it a little bit. eat? <laughs> yeah. Are we hungry? I'm
4: hungry. Okay. I'm hungry. We move to the living room to enjoy the meal together with friends. The kari doke is bright and refreshing, with raw long beans, cucumbers, cabbage, sprouts, and lemon basil, dressed in a peanut sauce that has a deep complexity of flavor. The tempeh curing includes more bitter notes that are perfectly balanced by the sweet soy sauce and coconut sugar. The sauce is syrupy and very satisfying. It's a perfect way to spend the afternoon, and I'm so grateful to have had the chance to learn about so many ingredients that were previously unfamiliar to me. Well, Thanks for doing the cooking with me and Milati. Yeah,
1: thank you for helping. That was fun. Is it
6: recording?
4: Mm-hmm. Oh. In here? Yeah. How are you going to edit all that? It's a lot. Thanks to Malati Chitrawareja for spending the time with me and sharing her cooking. Malati lives and works in Oakland, California, and writes the newsletter Three Salted Fish. You can find her recipe for tempeh kering on our website, eartheats.org.
1: You can subscribe to my newsletter by going to malatiphotography.com That's M-E-L-A-T-I, photography.com. And clicking on the newsletter tab and entering your email. Or you can go to my Instagram page, which is at three underscore salted underscore fish and you can click the link in my bio to sign up.
0: Toby Foster wrote and performed the opening and closing music for this piece, and Melati Chitroiraja Raja wrote and performed the cello underscoring throughout the piece. This story originally aired in September of 2021. I'm Kate Young. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. The first sign was a noticeable absence of what my friend Chuck politely calls bathroom-related smells. I wondered, could it be true? I rushed out into the garden and pulled a basil leaf from a clueless plant, crushed it between my fingers, and put it right up to my nose and sniffed. Nothing. There was absolutely nothing there. It was alarming, distressing, and extremely disorienting. I expected something to be a certain way, which has always been that way. And it was not that way. My COVID-19 symptoms were relatively mild, as they often are with breakthrough cases. I was fully vaccinated, and the virus remained primarily in the nose and throat region, while my vital organs were protected by the vaccine and my immune system. When my fever broke after a few days, and the body aches, sinus pressure, and mild cough subsided, my sense of smell did not return. I could still taste food, but flavors were lackluster, and textures became more central. I've always been partial to crunchy foods, and having dishes with a range of textures kept things interesting despite the absence of complex flavor compounds that rely on our olfactory capabilities. Cooking was a joke. I was lost in the kitchen. So many of the cues that I take for granted were missing. When onion and garlic are sizzling in a pan of olive oil on the stove, and you can't smell it, What are you even doing? How is that cooking? I instinctively bring the jar of starter to my nose when beginning a batch of sourdough bread. It told me nothing. When the golden, crusty loaf came out of the oven, it could have sat on the counter all night and I would have forgotten about it. Normally, that hour of waiting while it cools is agonizing. The aroma of freshly baked bread is irresistible. But I couldn't smell it. Gardening was strange. Pruning the tomato plants mid-season and training the vines onto the trellis is usually an overwhelming sensory experience. Tomato leaves have an unmistakable fragrance. But this year, I might as well have been pruning a maple tree. It had not occurred to me before I lost it the primary role that my sense of smell plays in my everyday life and the pleasures I experience in some of my favorite pastimes, growing food and cooking food. Sure, I could still do those things, but it felt like the volume was turned down, or as one person described it, it's like experiencing my garden in black and white instead of the full burst of color I'm used to. I'm not the first person in food media to explore this topic. Tejal Rao wrote about it for the New York Times, and I heard an interview with her about it on NPR. After months with no change, she dove into scent training and documented the process in her piece. A couple of weeks ago, KCRW's show Good Food dedicated most of the show to talking about our sense of smell, including an interview with a researcher that shared some fascinating nose knowledge. If you want to go further, Harold McGee has written a book called Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. Some listeners will know Harold McGee from his book On Food and Cooking, Science and Lore of the Kitchen. It's become an essential reference book in my household. Nosedive is his latest, but it was written before COVID-19 began robbing so many of us of this essential sense. You can hear a 2020 interview with him on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross. He says that smell is the dominant sense in our appreciation and perception of food. He says that our experience of food, what we call flavor, the overall sensory experience of food, is built on several sensations. One is taste on the tongue, which is limited to half a dozen or so sensations, such as sweet, sour salty, and bitter. But our sense of smell is able to distinguish among hundreds, even thousands of molecules. So the distinctiveness of many foods comes from our perceptions of their aromas. This definitely lines up with my experience and why I didn't really feel like I'd lost my sense of taste. My taste buds were working fine. For instance, tasting a hot sauce that I made, the acid from the vinegar was coming through, and so was the heat from the peppers. But I wasn't picking up that distinctive fruitiness of the habanero. Those flavor compounds must reside in the nose. I don't consider myself a super taster, but I might be a super sniffer. Or at least, I used to be. Less than a month before I caught the virus, I stepped out onto my back porch one morning and smelled gas, like natural gas or propane. My partner came out and sniffed around, but couldn't smell it. He called the gas company anyway, and sure enough, there was a gas leak at our meter right next to the back door. I often pick up on foul odors before my family does, and I use my nose to tell me if food is safe to eat. It feels downright dangerous to have this olfactory malfunction. I know many people experience this, some as a permanent condition. I never understood how devastating it could be. It just seemed like a minor inconvenience. Now I know better. When my sense of smell began to return, it was atmospheric. A faint perception of something cooking, something savory. I picked it up in the garage before I entered the kitchen where Carl was cooking. I made pesto with the last of the summer basil and I caught whiffs of it in the air, but not the garlic on my fingers. The peach dumplings, I almost knew they were baking. One night in the garden, harvesting the Ericover, vert, those thin bush beans I love to grow, a dill plant in the next bed over brushed against my arm, and my nose caught it. But crushing a feathery frond in my face, still not much. But I know it's coming back. I believe in its return. Hope is in the air. And it smells like pancakes on the griddle on a Saturday morning. I'm Kate Young. Here's hoping your nose is in perfect working order. It's one of the simple pleasures of human life. And one that I know I will never take for granted again. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. You can find links to the work that I mentioned at eartheats.org That's it for our show We'll see you next week
4: The Eats team includes Aya Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special
0: thanks this week to Chang Ho Su and Malati Chitro Areja.
4: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.